Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It is Tuesday, September 6th. Hope you had a nice holiday. Forget TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, even Napster. The most disruptive entertainment property of the 21st century is almost certainly YouTube. Born in 2005 as the brainchild of transplanted Silicon Valley bros Chad Hurley and Steve Chen, its sale to Google in 2006 changed the entire trajectory of web video and entertainment and the relationship between the internet and traditional Hollywood. Viacom, home to Paramount Pictures and South Park, sued YouTube for a billion dollars. Lazy Sunday, the SNL short with Andy Samberg that became the first big Hollywood clip to, quote, go viral, drew the ire of NBC lawyers at the same time as NBC's marketing team was actively uploading the video. It's this push and pull between YouTube and the user-generated economy, the creator revolution, whatever you want to call it, and Hollywood, those entrenched gatekeepers, that we're going to talk about today because that tension is still in existence today. Mark Bergen, a technology reporter at Bloomberg, just wrote a book about YouTube called Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination, and it comes out today. So today we're going to talk about YouTube versus Hollywood. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Mark Bergen, author of Like, Comment, Subscribe. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Yeah, it's good to be here. What I focused on when reading the book, and I think a lot of people within Hollywood will focus on, is this frenemy relationship that the traditional entertainment industry has had with YouTube over the years, going back all the way to the beginning with Lazy Sunday and the billion-dollar Viacom lawsuit that was taking place even as CBS, another outlet of the Sumner Redstone media empire was negotiating with YouTube. So there's been, there's always been this crazy back and forth where they like it, they hate it. It's destroying the business. It's adding to the business. You tell a great anecdote in the book about a meeting early on, like right when Google took over between YouTube and a bunch of Hollywood types at the CAA agency that was brokered by Kevin Morris, who represented the South Park guys Mm -hmm. in which an A-list actor in which you don't name I have some guesses, proposed a series of comedy shorts a la Charlie Chaplin that might perform well on YouTube. 
And the YouTube guy who was there says, great, that's, that's amazing. Who's going to fund it? <laughs> and the guy says, well, you, you're Google. Right. right and right. The, Goog- the YouTube guy says, no, we don't do that. We just run the ads. And that pretty much sums up the perspective that Hollywood had on what YouTube might be, right? It, the uh, another great example around that is uh, Lonely Girl Fifteen. You remember Lonely Girl Fifteen? Which of course was, uh, I knew. Uh, I knew her lawyer. There was a guy named Greg who was representing yeah, her, and I, I knew yeah. him at the time. And his, uh, I believe, his wife was uh, actually sort of uh, pretending to be her in the comment section, right? Um, oh, so God. this was this was like one of my <laughs> and a great, like one of the early. Uh, I think it was like the biggest hit in YouTube for for a while. Mm-hmm. But uh, so when when Lonely Girl 15 was one of the first batch uh, in 2007, uh, when YouTube introduced its partner program, like sharing ad revenue, and the the uh, guys who were running the channel like wanted an upfront, like they just sort of wanted the traditional like, oh, okay, you're gonna that that this partner program means you're gonna like give us money the same way that like this typically works, and and Google's like, no, no, no it's like a straight up ads, it's an ad split, like we are not, and for a long time. I, I mean, not a long time, but at least for like the first four years, there was this belief that we're like, we're not going to fund anything uh, and we're not going to give a leg up to any other users or accounts um, over any others. And and then obviously that, that began to change around 2011. And now, I mean, now YouTube has their new front, which is basically a TV upfront just for them and for digital uh, outlets. And that kind of is the, on the more traditional model. And YouTube began paying creators. I mean, this is one of the fundamental issues that I've always noticed about YouTube is its inability to launch professionally created content by traditional Hollywood creators. There are exceptions, of course, but how many times has YouTube launched an originals initiative where they earmark a billion dollars and pay people? I remember, you know, there was the Amy Poehler initiative there were you know there were a million of these things where they're like yeah we're getting real people to do shows for youtube remember cobra kai started as a youtube original nobody watched it on youtube then netflix comes in and says hey this is pretty good let's buy it everybody watches it on netflix so is that a yeah. platform problem or is that a uh, an ethos problem that youtube and google itself are just not equipped to do these kinds of premium videos I think I don't know if it's ethos as much of a of a either corporate culture or just decision making at the company. Like I so saw the the YouTube Originals program, they funded their first effort of the funded channels is kind of you flicked that there. Like uh, was we're gonna make celebrities turn celebrities into YouTubers. We're gonna give a channel right. to there was Tony like Hawk. a Shack. There was a Shack was channel. A Shaq, <laughs> yeah, the Shack comedy channel. That's the one I watched. Which, you know, I mean, who knows? In another world, like maybe Shaq would have inside the NBA would have become a maybe it was already on TNT by then. But mm. you know, like um, like there are all these sort of niche areas where like they they could if sports is a perfect example, like there's not really like a sense of programming. Uh like if you're, you know, I've gotten really into the NBA again and like I watch a lot of like NBA stuff on YouTube, but there's not like it's basically just the algorithm feeding me stuff and like I'll occasionally find and subscribe to channels, but I kind of really crave like I find some really good channels and then it's hard to like know other similar ones that that do the same thing for me, right? Um, and there were attempts in the past to do this at YouTube. Like there was uh, around the era of 2010 to 2014, there were some, they brought in a lot of like traditional media people. They had these extensive conversations about uh, streaming rights. Uh, they ended up like cricket was a big one they got, which I think is a substantial and not talked about enough. But you know they they tried to get NFL, they tried to get all the the major leagues, and 
and, and none of them would bite. Um, in, in part because Google didn't want to put up the money. Right. Let's talk a little bit about that and about Google and YouTube today. Mm-hmm. Because what is the what is the dollar amount right now on the creator community on YouTube? That's a t- I well so okay. Here's what here's the here's how this is a frustrating deal with with mm-hmm. uh, reporting on Google. So okay, so they YouTube made last year twenty nine billion in in ad revenue. Uh, YouTube has came out with this stat. I think it was last summer. We paid out over the past three years. We paid out thirty billion to the creator economy. It's, like, it's a huge number, right? You know what they didn't say in the fine print and in the follow up question is like, oh, how much of that like creator is defined as broadly as possible? Like Taylor Swift is a creator, and that's right. Scenario. So is CBS like, Viacom exactly. <laughs> uh, and and there's no clarity then about how much of it goes to uh, the creator economy, like actual like what what YouTube calls I love this term uh, endemic creators, right? Like the the native species on on the platform mm-hmm. uh, versus the the Taylor Swifts and the and the Jimmy Kimmels. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's a closely guarded figure inside the company. I hope someone one day reports it out. Uh, I also hope that like what would be great to report is my sense is like how top heavy the creator economy is. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's it's really going to a lot of you know probably the top fifty to one hundred creators are making you know thirty forty percent of the revenue, right? I think that's probably right. I think that's something that the company and listen, YouTube has tried to. There are people inside YouTube that have tried to change that. Mm-hmm. Uh, their book gets into this. I think is really like interesting. Around 2017, they were like oh, going to tear up their payment model, and then restructure it around an engagement in part um, because they just thought like this this sort of traditional model of like we're going to pay you based on the commercials, the pre roll commercials that run uh, before or in the middle of your video is is kind of antiquated. Uh, they were going through this big like, brand safety issue. And then there were like creators that that they wanted, like LGBTQ creators, a perfect example, right? Like YouTube, people inside YouTube like like they think they like having that um, as a talking point. Like we have, we have more diversity than Hollywood. Like uh, we are, there's no more gatekeepers, and so we can we can give voice to these people that don't have a traditional like a voice. Um, but at the same time, what was happening around then is they were like tightening the filters uh, to make their their content more like amenable to advertisers and so that was like knocking out like ella any like queer creators were getting demonetized uh and so they had this discussion like one solution they tried to to put forward and ended up uh, not going with was like oh what if we just pay like it might be more fair and equitable to pay versus engagement uh rather than paying based on pre-roll ads you know, then like at that point someone told me like, you know, basically one of the biggest stuff like Logan Paul would be making more than uh, news organizations on, right. on YouTube. And it's like this, you know, YouTube, like there are creators like Hank Green. Bad incentives there. Yeah, exactly. There are creators like Hank Green, who is from all, it's like a moral authority and been creating like educational content for a long time, has pretty good CPMs, mm-hmm. uh, despite not having like the biggest subscriber total. Yeah. And so that is something that that YouTube has always sort of had this like really interesting tension that, that it will, probably will always exist in the company. Right. And if you're, you know, fighting people and, you know, pulling stuff out of your butt and stuff, that would get more engagement. Pulling stuff out of your butt. That's right. Or uh, what was Logan Paul was the, um, my favorite one was the, uh, so Logan Paul, if your audience remembers, uh, got into trouble at the beginning of 2018, he, like a suicide forest. The writing, suicide you know, forest. Yeah, it was a key moment at the company and then followed it up 
Uh, he sorry, showed a uh, he blurred out the face, but he showed some, he went to some Japanese place where people right. commit suicide and that's like right. did a whole video about the suicide force. Yeah, uh, and he had this was like a uh, what was around the same time. He also jumped in on the remember the Tide Pod challenge, which like oh, yeah. that was like freaked out YouTube in part because PNG was a big advertiser. Well, and 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 kids were dying, so you know there's yeah, that for sure. Uh, and but he like tweeted about it, and then he like tased a rat in a video. Anyway. So they had this meeting and, and they like they set this, I think as a fascinating rule, which is like, okay, what we're we're gonna kind of prohibit uh videos that uh where you if you can recreate this stunt in your house, if your 12-year-old can recreate this stunt, like if you're showing something like lighting your house on fire, like that's not gonna allow on 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 YouTube anymore. But other stunts that can't be recreated uh easily are okay. And I think in in like the subsequent months, Logan Paul like skydived in nude. Uh, which is like, you know, kudos to him for pulling that off on YouTube. But uh, there, there's a great example and, and there are plenty, you know, like countless examples of, of that, of like this count and mass game, count and mass game between the platform and its uh, its creators. How much do you think Logan Paul has made off YouTube in yeah. his career? I mean, he might be making more of boxing, right? Now he is, but now he's sort of graduated into that like celebrity boxing portion of his career, but just on YouTube. I'm, I wish I had a better answer for that. I mean, I think that the Paul brothers, Jake, even more so, have like leaned in them. They were one of the first to lean in the merchandise. Yeah. Uh, uh, and some of that was around the, the brand safety credit. This is like another like fascinating part about YouTube is they, you know, they cracked down on monetization. And so you saw like a lot fewer, uh, fewer channels and videos were making money. And then what happens is the creators are like going into merch because that's a way to make money. And so you got a lot more sponsored content and then YouTube gets into trouble then around like, uh, especially with kids videos, you know, there, there, that's a space where it's certainly not regulated like television at all, but it is more regulated, um, than other parts of YouTube. Um, and, and there, there are outstanding complaints about that still about, you know, how much of YouTube kids programming is just like 20 minute long commercials. Yeah, trust me, I, I've got a kid in that demo and it, <laughs> it gets pretty commercially pretty fast if you're going down that rabbit hole. Also, like weirdly religious, like you watch a video mm-hmm. with your kid and all of a sudden there's like a Jesus message like five minutes into it and you don't you have to kind of monitor that to like oh, make wow. sure that you know what's going on. They slip that stuff in. Mormon vloggers, uh, this is not in the book, but I, one of the other, like Mormon vlogging is huge. It's like mm. a gigantic family vlogging and then overlap there is a, uh, uh, one of the the many niches on YouTube that thrives, and the Ryan phenomenon. That that kid Ryan, I hope he turns out okay. But that kid, <laughs> I, he's been exploited, in my opinion. Let's, yeah, I love talking about Ryan. What he and um, the Ryan Kaji is, uh, you know, a, a, a media mogul. Um, like we're talking, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars that he has made. Yeah, I think it, Forbes. I don't know what was the recent. I think Forbes has him like thirty million. As um, in their estimate. All right. So that's a little less, but he's going to make money on this. I mean, he has toys. He has a show. This is literally a cute little four or five year old who is now probably oh, he's nine. Like now. 10. He's yeah, nine. he's nine. Maybe 10. Yeah. But there, there are hundreds of videos of him and his parents just doing fun science experiments and hanging out at home. Kids fucking love it. Kids love it. Chris Williams, who runs Pocket Watch, which is like a kid's studio uh, and used to be at Maker Studios. Um, this part was in the, some of it's in the book and some of it I had like unfortunately about, but I thought like, you know, cause I had pushed kind of pushed back on this. I'd like, who knows what, like these YouTube kid stars are now and entering adolescent, like actual teenage and like 
there was one before him called Evan Tube that I think is like a late teenager. Like, what's going to happen to these kids whose entire lives <laughs> right. have been on, on camera? And at Chris's point, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, actually. He's like, you know what, uh, Ryan, who he works with, Ryan Kaji, he's like, you know what Ryan's never had to do his entire career? His audition. Oh, right. Meaning like a normal kid actor would, yeah. would be rejected a hundred times. And yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And he, I mean, you know, who like it's a different, it's a very different uh, ramifications of True. you being re- rejected by, oh, I, I like, I'm sure that Ryan is familiar with how many of like, the traffic of his videos, I guess. Yeah. And listen, money solves a lot of that stuff. Hopefully his parents are putting it away. Uh, but yeah. I, the, people the, who have worked with them say they're like, uh, like upstanding. And I mean, like, uh, like good parents and I, like they did like many people on YouTube sort of fall into this rather very quickly and like unexpectedly. Uh, and, but it is like, let's, let's be honest here. Like, you know, they've talked about this publicly about how they like originally put the videos up to show their family living abroad. But then they went, you know, he went back and like when he was three years old, I think they posted like hundreds of videos on YouTube. And like, that, that's a little, <laughs> I'm a little bit. skeptical of that. So basically like when you're looking at the landscape, today of the different platforms, all of which have a different pitch to creators. Where does YouTube stand in that hierarchy? Is it still the number one place that creators want to be? Is Are the economics as favorable or more favorable than elsewhere? Or has TikTok or Snap or any of the other platforms, Reels, all these places that are going nuts to try to lure that audience, have they made inroads on YouTube? Oh yeah, it's still, it's still the place to be. But I mean, if you want to have any it's just a consistent place to make ad, like ad revenue. It's a consistent place to, to, there's an infrastructure in place to do brand deals there. If you're doing selling like merchandise, uh, those are the sort of the three main, main avenues for making money. I guess the fourth one being like the sort of Patreon model. Uh, but I think like a lot of successful Patreon uh, creators are either like doing podcasts um, or they're, they have YouTube channels. And then, I mean, we had a, discussed as much but youtube is now they just hired someone to run podcasting like they're making sort of a devoted effort i I imagine the next step there is on their their advertising side which is like just trying to go after that that ad market it's weird though facebook tried podcasting twitter's tried it i don't know do you think that that youtube will be able to crack that the exception here is that youtube came into this because it had you know joe rogan's the class like joe rogan's grew in part because of YouTube. Like people are watching his podcast uh, on YouTube. Logan Paul has a big YouTube channel, like H3H3 is, is. And a podcast. Yeah, sorry, I was meant. Logan Paul is a big podcast. Yes. It's like a lot of major marquee YouTubers started to podcast and they just put their podcast on YouTube. And that was like that. Or I think YouTube actually sort of stumbled into this it kind of late to the game in in part because podcasting lived in a different part of Google who was like under the like Google Play and Android team and right. then there were a, my, the book goes into it like it's sort of like like music for a long time lived under um Google Android and people at YouTube were like look music videos are gigantic we should be owning music for Google it was a years long process some of it nasty and some of it just bureaucratic and that's sort of what's happening in, in, in podcasting too. But but I think what separates, uh, I imagine what what the reason that Facebook uh, failed and YouTube might succeed is because it's already there. Like, there's plenty of people hosting podcasts on YouTube and YouTube just needs to like fine tune the machinery to make it really easy and accessible to find podcasts and to upload them. Uh, I right. do think so TikTok has started to, as to pay creators, uh, the model right now, at least as I understand it, is like a, a, a pool 
uh, a one big pool. And and Hank Green, YouTuber has and TikToker has pointed out that like the economics of that are as the more and more creators uh, go into that pool, that pool of money is pretty is like constant, and so the like less and less money, and so it's not a so far that might might change TikTok. Uh, and, and ByteDance, the parent company, clearly has like a lot of money and resources and, and wants to figure this out. But I think like TikTok's where you go to get find, uh, discovered and YouTube's uh, where you go to make money. That might change. I think it's already starting to change yeah. now as we're seeing like TikTok personalities. Um, TikTok is the first real viable threat to YouTube's creator business in the sense that they're actually paying people. Right. Like Facebook has not been able to do that on a regular basis. Twitch is sort of starting to... You know, you have like the Spotify is certainly like eating into when they take Joe Rogan. That's that's a hit to to YouTube. But my my sense is that YouTube's competition still uh, and maybe forever will be like television. Like they right. are trying to they are trying to convince TV advertisers that uh, their spending is disproportionate to the size uh, and ratio of the audience, uh, and that um, the audience is on YouTube. The audience is digital. YouTube and Google has you know the world's biggest uh and, and most efficient ads machine and and so i think that's you know that that and regulation are their two biggest worries one interesting thing as about youtube is its tortured relationship with the music industry i mean it, this has been back and forth you hear gripes all the time from artists that the monetization on youtube is so much less than some of these other platforms even though it was a big deal when YouTube hired Lior Cohen, who's yeah. a very you know well-known music industry executive, to run YouTube's music initiative. Um, where do you think the relationship between music artists and YouTube stands today? Yeah, uh, I would love to have Lior uh, see listen to Lior come on your podcast uh, mm-hmm. and see how long he stays at at, at YouTube given <laughs> they were in that Kinsel departed. Um, but I do think YouTube's a priority. Like there was a conference that I think it was a Recode conference a couple of years ago, and and Susan Wojcicki said on stage like YouTube's a, a music service, and everyone in the audience was like, "What?" And YouTube is trying. Like they had this thing called Music Key in 2015 a while ago. Like they've had a lot of false starts, and they've we've done. But the consumption reporting. is huge. The consumption is gigantic, and, and and we did some reporting that like Vivo and and like some of those early meetings were like really heated, and 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 complaints about hustle. And maybe acting in anti-competitive ways. Um, that being said, like I think, yes, they, they YouTube always turned to the fact that music videos have been and probably will always be uh, gigantic. Uh, and and now you're you know like record labels are have intentional strategies about how to debut a music video. Go on, like I spend you know periodically look at like YouTube trending page. It is consistently like Mr. Beast gaming and music. Well, but and the the royalty rates are lower. That's what the music people hate. Yeah, I think you, know, that's, you, you get you just get more money from Spotify and Apple Music. That's right. I think they're going to have to figure that out. They've been like YouTube, like the YouTube Music. You know, they're kind of coupling it with like they, what was I think the fifty million was the figure they put out recently. A lot of that is like myself. I was sort of grandfathered in from Google Play Music. Like I was a Google Play subscriber, and then it's like just go over to, to YouTube Music. I, you know, it's, it's sort of like YouTube premium. So they have YouTube premium, like the ad free service. Um, this is my, I've talked to some people in it, but like, this is the data point here. Like, okay, how often do you hear YouTube talk about YouTube premium? Never. Uh, yeah. How often do you hear like the YouTube's creators 
who are the most influential body of people on the planet, probably like trying to convince their audience to subscribe to YouTube premium. Right. Right. Yeah. It, my assumption there is like margins on at their advertising business are so much better. Um, and so, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think like Spotify is a threat and has been for a while. So it's, it's like, but it's one of many, you know, there's television, there's shorts, there's commerce. There, there's, there's so many competing fronts uh in youtube and and like only so much even though google has a lot of money um they are judicious in how they spend it yeah we didn't even we didn't even really talk about that or youtube tv like trying to compete with the cable bundles and everything so much to it's such a big platform there's there's so much scope the and the book covers a lot of it hopefully keeps people enthralled yeah it's a great book i enjoyed it it's called like, comment, subscribe inside YouTube's chaotic rise to world domination. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, before we start, Spitgate. Are you a truther? Do you believe it's real? It is a real spit. This is the modern Zapruder film. I've watched it upwards really? of a hundred times. You believe that Harry Styles, when entering the premiere of Don't Worry Darling, spit on Chris Pine in front of the world, his girlfriend, Olivia Wilde, and everybody. You believe he spit? Yes. Uh, Olivia Wilde, I think, has corrupted Harry Styles. And it, I'm now, I, I now like him less than I did before. I don't know why. It's just a feeling he's given me. Uh, and watching this video a hundred times, Chris Pine, it is, it is at the exact moment that Harry Styles bends over, makes some type of movement with his jaw. Chris Pine looks down, laughs at his at his lap as if he's having to deal with some child next to him who's acting petulant. It's a spit. That is true. However, I just don't think Harry Styles would do that. What is Chris Pine doing then? It's the most bizarre movement. I think he's having a space out moment. I mean, there's videos of him from earlier in the day where he looks like he's on another planet. And he's looking down, I think, and he's looking at his sunglasses and wondering where his sunglasses are. He then finds them, smiles, and is like having a moment to himself. See, Matt, I've watched it so many times. He has his sunglasses in his hand, drops them in between his legs right before Harry sits down, and then grabs them again. So he didn't lose them because they were just in his hand. Uh, I think that that's the simple, logical explanation. But I think the the most likely thing is he was having a brain fart and did not really realize what was going on and then kind of snapped back into it. I don't know. I'll, well, the people at home decide for There yourselves. are other angles. Have you watched the other angles of this? Yes. Of course you have. They uh, support my beliefs. Really? Yeah. I just don't see it. They substantiate it. We'll see. Now, the good news is, is that this is probably going to be an, a media narrative for the next three or four weeks. And we're going to see interview after interview about whether it happened. So we will hopefully get to the bottom of this. Yeah, I mean, perhaps this is all just a Machiavellian marketing ploy out of this right. whole Don't Worry Darling team. Let's move on to a victory lap. Predicted last week that Top Gun would be the biggest grocer of the long weekend, which would have been very significant. Memorial Day weekend and Labor Day weekend, almost never been done, and it happened. 7.9 million for the weekend, crossed 700 million domestic. Huge, huge win. Bullet Train came in right behind, and then... Uh, and then Spider-Man, which came out, what, nine months ago? <laughs> I know. It's sort of a, a, a limp victory here because the only reason these movies are doing well is because there's literally nothing in theaters. Yeah. Um, also, we got some great responses to our Young Hollywood Stock Exchange last week. 
Um, we missed a couple names, and people were very helpful on Twitter to remind us of that fact. Um, what do you think the number one name we missed was? It's shocking to me. It's shocking this person is under 30. Was it either of the Fannings? It was Dakota Fanning, who amazingly is not 45 years old, is 28 years old. Well, it's all the child actors. They're always way younger than you think because they've been around for so long in our lives. Exactly. It was kind of amazing. Um, and Elle Fanning, another good one. She's uh, in her early 20s. Um, Zolo Maradueno, who we actually talked about a little bit, but he's the guy, he's Miguel from Cobra Kai, and he has uh, a DC movie, Blue Beetle, coming out next year if they don't, mm. if they don't cut it for a tax credit. Um, and, but the big name we missed was probably Rachel Zegler, the star of mm, West Side yes. Story. Um, only because she has two big studio movies coming out. She's the star of the Snow White remake that Disney is doing. And then she's also in the Hunger Games reboot. So that'll be a big opportunity for her. Uh, all right. So my prediction today. So it's Emmys week. Are you excited for the Emmys? Yeah, I do. I enjoy the Emmys. I'm only going to do predictions in three categories because those are the big ones people care about. Series, drama, series, comedy, and limited series. But we can do it now because the Creative Arts Emmys, which are some people derisively call the ponytail Emmys because it's like the crafts and the, you know, editing and casting and gaffers and that kind of stuff. That was last weekend. And we had some narratives that have emerged from the Creative Arts Emmys, which may impact the actual primetime Emmys, which are actually Monday this year, not Sunday because of football. They're on NBC and NBC does not want to preempt football. So in the drama series category, let me, let me go through the nominees. Succession, Yellow Jackets, Squid Game, Severance, Ozark, Better Call Saul, Euphoria, and Stranger Things. Craig, do you have a pick? I would pick Squid Game. Interesting. There is a movement where people think that Squid Game, because it was such a global phenomenon and it mm -hmm. really is like the first international show to break through at the U.S. Emmys like this, um, people think it could pull an upset, but I got to go Succession. I just think yeah. that this show is like tailor-made for Emmy voters. It is like injecting euphoria into the veins of Emmy voters and not euphoria like the show. So I think, and it got 25 nominations, most of any show, just it's, it's, it's probably going to win. Even though most people think that this season three was not as good as the first two, um, I think Succession is going to pull it out. Uh, and they are the heavy favorite. They're minus 225, and Squid Game is second at plus 333. There you go. All right. Comedy series. The nominees, Kirby Enthusiasm, my favorite. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, my mom's favorite. What We Do in the Shadows. Only Murders in the Building. Abbott Elementary. Hacks. And Ted Lasso. Uh, my guess is it's go going to be Ted Lasso. It's going to be Ted Lasso. Which is a bummer. I, like, I, I just wish these voters were not so kind of like check the box on what they know and what they watch because this season of Ted Lasso was not that good. I stand by the take that if Ted Lasso came out 10 years ago, it would be an average show. Nobody would care about it. Totally. And it was just because it came out during the pandemic and was like a feel good show. Everybody loved it. Now it's well done. Like I, I'm not going to say it's a bad show, but this season was kind of a bummer. It's like borderline, like a, a Disney channel show in my opinion. But. Totally. Um, but my opinion doesn't matter. I'm only predicting what I think the voters will vote for, and they will vote for Ted Lasso, in my opinion. Okay. But if there's a potential shocker, I think it might be Hacks. Or Only Murders in the Building. Or Abbott mm. Elementary. Those are all <laughs> shows with constituencies. All right. Uh, let's move on to Limited Series. This is the one that I think is the most difficult. 
And I have finally made up my mind. Here are the nominees. Inventing Anna, Pam and Tommy, The Dropout, Dope Sick, and The White Lotus. I think The White Lotus is going to win. I love The White Lotus. I hope it does win. It's good. I, and it's not just like Sydney Sweeney love effect going on. I think people thought it was like, it, it just hit the right type of voters. Like these, the people who watch HBO and love The White Lotus are Emmy voters. However, this requires me to go back in my prediction from earlier that I thought the dropout would sweep the Emmys. At this point, I think Amanda Seyfried is going to win for her performance, but I don't think dropout is going to win. And in, in fact, I think if there's a number two that could sneak in there, it's probably dope sick on Hulu because that one I think seems like it's a little bit more important and people can feel good about voting for the, you know, anti-opioid abuse show. Sure. Um, but ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, White Lotus, I think, is going to win. Uh, White Lotus is the only original show, right? It's the only show not based on anything in this category. Well, what do you do? You consider Pam and Tommy based on something? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> based on it, based on, a, on the source material being a sex tape. Well, it, considering the show's title is literally the names of two real people. Yeah, I that's would say true. It's based on yeah, something. that's true. Uh, I know all of them are real people. Based on real people, yeah, except, for except White, Lotus. White Lotus. Yeah, it's crazy. And Mike White, it's fun that he's kind of made a resurgence, uh, you know. And the, the sequel's coming out. I think people are excited about that. Yeah, I think the lead actor in White Lotus was amazing, the Australian guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Murray Bartlett. He's amazing. Yeah, um, yeah I think th the problem with the White Lotus people is that they're all nominated in these categories. So if Murray Bartlett's going to win, he's going to have to beat a lot of his co-stars. He should. Yeah, we'll see. All right, those are my predictions. I want to thank Mark Bergen for coming on the show. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck. And I want to thank you. We'll see you Thursday. Thursday.